0: All right, y'all, we're going to go and get started. Um, good to be with you all. Welcome to week four of Church for Monday. Um, we are giving you a bonus week of name tags. So if you, if you remember, I said that we were only going to have name tags for the first three weeks. But we, we are a community of grace. And so uh, if you want to, please use them for tonight. But this is your last night for them. So remember people's names for next week. Uh, and so just, just that's part of the class is, is getting to know one another, practicing the value of remembering names. So um, I'm so glad you guys are with us. Um, what we're going to do tonight, I want to I do a brief recap of our time from last week uh, before we jump into what we have in store for tonight. So, so for those who were with us uh, last week, uh, what was kind of the, the, the mark uh, that we discussed and unpacked the metaphor that Nathan shared with us last week? What's the metaphor? The yoke, the yoke. And, and what is the yoke a metaphor for? What is it, what does it communicate to us? What is it symbolizing? What is, te- what is Jesus explaining through the metaphor of the yoke? Anybody wanna take a stab at that? Teaching us how to, to live. Yeah, it's, it, the, the yoke is a metaphor for how we are to live. That, that just as the cross is a symbol of death, that that actually brings about life. The the yoke, you remember, it was a symbol of of slavery and oppression that actually brings about the freedom of life uh, that we find in living with and for Jesus that uh, as he enters the yoke with us. And so absolutely, the yoke is this symbol that we are not simply saved from death, uh, but that we are saved into a new life with Christ. The yoke symbolizes this ongoing life of following Jesus in all of life. And so, so what we're going to see, so as you've kind of seen, we're, we're continuing to unpack some of these marks of discipleship. And so we saw how uh, the first week we looked at uh, what it means that we all have a Monday. Then we looked at what it means to take up our cross, that we are a people who are centered upon the central message of the gospel and how that shapes our daily lives. We are a people who enter into the yoke with Jesus. And tonight we look at this mark uh, that those disciples who are ready for Monday, they build their lives upon the Bible. And so we're going to be spending our time kind of looking at the Bible, the, 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 the meta narrative of Scripture and what it's communicating. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, I thought I just want to kind of ask this question. You can you can share out loud just some examples, but I'd love to hear what are some of your favorite stories? What are some of your favorite maybe epic stories or tales or, or fantasy tales? What are some that come to mind? Do you think that you've either read multiple times? You've seen the movies several times. What are some of your favorite epic stories? Die Hard? Yeah, it's a great Christmas movie. Lovely, lovely. I think it's based on a true story, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, What else? What are some other epic stories? Uh, Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation, yes. It's classic literature, I think. Uh, Classic theater. Other, Other tales, other epics? Castaway. Castaway, okay, okay. That's a good story. One you you can kind of like, sometimes you think about, like, being on a deserted island would be nice, but maybe for like 15 minutes, not like 15 years. What else? What are some other epic stories that come to mind? Born free. Say it again? Born free. Time. <laughs> Sound of music. Sound of music. Oh, so, okay, okay, got it, got it. That is. <laughs> That is a classic. That is a classic of my family. In fact, I can't keep, I can't stop my kids from singing uh, a lot of the songs in that musical. And so it's, it's lovely. I love this, the sound of music in my home. Uh, what else? What are some other tales? Casablanca. Casablanca. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. That's a great one. Lord of the Rings. That's an epic story. That's like, I, like, I think Tolkien's still writing it. It's so long. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a great one. That's a great one. Uh, there, there's a, a series, a saga that my family, that we've gotten into called the Wing Feather Saga. It's a great uh, children's, young adult kind of narrative. It's been really, we've loved it. It's a great narrative of the Igaby family and, and their journeys and adventures. And there, there's something about stories when we get into them, we're, we're captivated by them. We feel drawn in. You can almost feel as though you're a part of the story. A good story makes you feel as though you're a part of that story. And, and, and what I want us to think about is so envision whatever, whatever movie or story, whether it's Castaway or Casablanca or, or Lord of the Rings, imagine that story is real. Imagine it's a true story and imagine yourself in that story. And, and so, so if, if this were true, this would, this would change the way in which you think about yourself. It would change the way you view reality and your understanding of what the good life is, what good and what evil is. If this story is true it influences and shapes who you are who you are and how you're living and so you'd the, the questions of like who is good and who is bad uh, what is the conflict and how do we seek resolution to this conflict where is this story going and how does it end you would have a lot of the answers to these questions and and, and while this little thought experiment is kind of fun to think about with the stories that we love This is also true of just life. It's common for for people to hear hear people talk about how life is like a story. We each have a story that we are living and telling. And and in those stories, there are heroes and there are villains. There is conflict and resolution. But, and so when we think about our lives, one kind of helpful question to ask is what story are we living? What story are we telling? And is it a story worth telling? Is it significant? And and is it a story that makes sense of our lived experiences? And so so there there are many narratives that we kind of believe and buy into, sometimes without even realizing it or recognizing it. But but one like dominant story uh, is the idea that I am the hero of my my story. The idea that that everything that exists is really for myself, that I am the hero. it's, It's kind of a choose your own adventure kind of story. And many of us kind of functionally live that story that everything is really about us. We may not say that, we're good Christian people, so we would never admit that, but we functionally live out a story where we're at the center, we are the hero. Another dominant narrative is that there's no story, that there's really no meaning or significance to life. And so there's no point in seeking any kind of triumph or victory. There's no point in trying to overcome conflict and hardship. There is no story, and so what's the point of having any kind of meaning or significance? And so we create proximate meaning, proximate significance. But we don't know what story we're in, and that produces, when we don't know the story we're in, that produces a great deal of confusion, uh, of tension, of of even an existential crisis of some kind. And I believe in many ways, I think why we see such, such dysfunction such uh, anxiety, such confusion in our world, I believe is in no small part due to the fact that we don't know what story we're a part of. We've lost sense of and sight of any kind of story that makes sense of all of our stories. And so tonight, what I want us to look at is an understanding of what it means to build our lives upon the story of scripture. Not Not just scripture as a religious tale that gives us good spiritual guidance, but scripture as a story that makes sense of all of our stories. The story you think you're in determines the life you live. That's a simple way of thinking about it. The story story you think you're in determines the life you live. And and this is true of, of, of us as Christians, but as well as people who are not believers. Everyone is living and believing as though they're a part of some narrative, uh, and that the great Scottish philosopher, um, Alistair MacIntyre, uh, he once said this, he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? I want to say that one more time. I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the question, the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part And and this is fundamentally what we as Christians believe. When we talk about the significance of the biblical narrative and the importance of scripture, it's not just that it is God's word to us. It is that. It's no less than that. But we believe the Bible to be a narrative, a story that makes sense of all of our stories. It is not just one religious book among many. We believe the Bible from beginning to end is a story that makes sense of all of our stories. And that's what we're going to be kind of unpacking together tonight. And so so our big idea for this evening, as we look at this mark uh, that a disciple who's ready for Monday builds their life upon the Bible, our big idea is this, is that your Monday needs a better story. Again, as we think about the places in which God has called us, our vocations, our communities, our spheres of influence, the question we should be asking ourselves is what story am I living as I enter into my Monday life? And not just what story am I telling myself that I live, what story am I functionally living out as I engage with my neighbors, as I participate in my work, as as I find opportunities to uh, uh, live into my hobbies and free time, how I spend my money, how I view my body, what story am I telling myself? And so this is kind of our, our big idea that we're gonna look at. And our first kind of main point for this evening is that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. Has a story. This is true even of the people who reject the idea that there's a story that makes sense of all of our stories. Everyone has what what is referred to as a worldview. You've probably heard this term maybe in, in a philosophy class or in conversation or in books you've read. But everybody, whether they recognize it or not, has a worldview. They have some kind of framework or list of beliefs that they look out um, through and understand the world and uh, that they use to make sense of. And so, so just like excuses, everybody has them, uh, just like excuses, everybody has a worldview. We all need some kind of story to make sense of our lives and that gives meaning to our lives. But, but when you hear the word worldview, what, what comes to mind? When, when you hear someone say that they have a worldview that, uh, or they're criticizing your worldview, what, how would you define or explain what words come to mind when you think of the, the term worldview? What matters in this life? What matters, okay? So, so there's a value statement. It's not just a collection of intellectual beliefs. It's a way of actually assessing and determining and prioritizing value and matter. That's great, Doug. Yeah. What else? What's another way you describe a worldview? view? Perspective. A perspective. A perspective. Was that you, Tyler? Did you say that? Or, OK, sorry. Well, I hear it, and then I turn, and then no one's talking. It's like, uh, I think it was a guy. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mitch. Yeah. So uh, a perspective that you have. It's, it's from your vantage point how you see and make sense of reality. That's good. What else? True. Say it again. Truth. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is it's not just a vantage point. It's not just something that I hold personally. I'm declaring it to be something that is true, at least for myself, but perhaps even more for everyone. Now that's not how everybody holds their worldview. Like, well, you have yours and I have mine and that's nice. And hopefully they never conflict, but they often do. But the idea of truth is absolutely wrapped up in our worldview. What else? Maybe one more. What's another word or association you have with the term worldview? An experience, yeah. So it's, it's not just something you kind of ascertain through reading and books and something that's been passed down to you like, well, my grandpappy had a worldview and my father had a worldview. And now I have. Well, like it's, it's this idea of it's a part of your lived experience that forms and shapes you. Now, I'm, I'm going to give a very kind of boring, cold textbook definition of a worldview. And, and is this. And again, there's a lot of definitions we can use, but a worldview in general is a conceptual framework that, I didn't write, there we go, that influences our functional beliefs, behaviors and affections. A worldview is a conceptual framework that influences our functional beliefs, behaviors and affections. And this word functional is really operative, really important because everybody has like a stated worldview. Like this is what I believe. These are the things I I give intellectual assent to. But, but we all know the person who claims to believe something and yet lives another way. We all know those people because we are those people. <laughs> like, like we can admit that. We, but it's, it's the functional belief that we're very interested in. How do you functionally live out? You, the way in which you live your life shows me what you believe. The way in which you behave and conduct yourself in this world shows me what you believe and what your worldview is and your affections, what you love, what you give attention to. That tells me how you view and understand the world that we inhabit. Some some people often think of a worldview as a set of lenses that we look through. That's a great metaphor, that that our worldview is a set of lenses that we see and observe the world around us through. And, And so when we experience dissonance though in our world, and so often, I mean worldviews collide because we, we, have not, we have not found a way to agree on how to make sense of the, wor- of the world around us. You have your worldview, I have mine, and when they conflict, that's where tensions arise. The question is, is there one lens, is there one story, A one meta-narrative that makes sense of all of our stories? And so, so often when things, when, when, we, when our lived experience isn't matching up to maybe our values or the things we've been taught to believe, well, we kind of have to sit, step back and say, okay, perhaps my worldview isn't correct. Maybe there are some assumptions I've come to believe about the world that are not correct. And so we need to kind of have our eyes re-examined, so to speak. And my, my little brother, I, I love telling this story, my little brother, Aaron, when he was six, he went to the eye doctor for the first time. And, and the way the story goes is that he went there and, and the doctor asked him to read the bottom line. And, and he stood there just like, just silent. And my mom was convinced that he had like, you know, he was vision impaired, had some problem. And we're kind of concerned. And then all of a sudden after like a minute, he just goes, G'fubazin'. <laughs> He was trying to read the lie. Like he was, he was given this instruction, like read the bottom line. He's like, that's not a word in the English language. You know, I just barely got through kindergarten. And, and so like he goes, he's trying to like figure out, is there something wrong with my eyes? And so he goes to the doctor and he thinks that there's something wrong. He's like, that's not a word. So there's nothing wrong with his eyes. But he thought that he didn't have an ability to make sense of the, of the world that was before him. In the same way, when we experience a dissonance, with what we claim to believe and how we are living, well, we should ask ourselves, perhaps there's there's something I'm missing. Perhaps there's a, a belief I've come to buy into that isn't true or correct or consistent. We all have a learned worldview, what we claim to believe, but we also have a lived worldview, what we actually believe. Everyone has a learned worldview and everyone has a lived worldview. Not everyone has both of those being the same. And so that's a question for Christians to ask ourselves regularly. Do I live out the beliefs that I claim? Is my learned worldview consistent with my lived worldview? Is the story I ascribe to in the scriptures a story that I build my Monday life upon? And so a worldview, when we think about a worldview, it's, it's regardless of what you might believe or what your friends believe or neighbors or coworkers or family believe, every worldview has to answer a list of, of questions. I lost my eraser here. Uh, a list of questions. And, and, and this is, uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time here. This kind of will feel rather heady. But, but every worldview kind of has to answer questions around these five key areas well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it to four for right now, but you have this area of what's called metaphysics. That's just a fun word to say, it makes you sound smart. Metaphysics, which is really just the study of, of ultimate reality, of what is really real, what is true of all of existence. And so this is really, when we talk about questions of God and of the cosmos, this is, this is really, we're dealing with broadly the area of metaphysics, ultimate reality. But you also have the question of, of anthropology. Every worldview has to, uh, anthropology. And this is obviously the study of humanity, but it's, it's more than just kind of the study of like human culture. Broadly, anthropology is the question of like, who are we as humans? Where did we come from? What is our purpose and meaning? How do we make sense of what it means to be human? Every worldview has to have some kind of answer to the question of what it means to be human. And then you have, and this is another fun word, makes you sound smart. Uh, You have to answer the questions of epistemology, epistemology. And I I promise that we'll, we'll actually talk about very practical things, but epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know anything? How do we know what we know? How do you know that you're not just some brain in a vat hooked up to electrodes that's making you experience the things you're experiencing? How do you not know that you're some crazy person on the streets of New York having like a class with like you're just sitting here with people and like people are walking by, you don't know that. How do you know what you know? And so this, that sounds silly and it's a bit tongue in cheek, but everyone must have some kind of answer to the question of what is the basis of knowledge? What is the, is there truth, as Sam mentioned? Is there some basis of understanding truth at all? And then lastly, and there's other categories we can talk about. There's the area of ethics. What is right? What is good? What is just? Again, while while people may not put it into these categories, like what are your metaphysical assumptions about the universe? Like no one talks in those ways, but everyone should have some question of what is really real in the universe? Who is Who are we as humans? How do we know anything? What is the basis of knowledge? And how do we determine what is truly right, good, and just? Any worldview has to answer these questions. And as we think about being disciples who are ready for Monday, who live out our callings and our faith in a consistent way, we have a story that not only answers these questions and gives an explanation to them, we believe in a story that makes sense of all stories. That we don't just believe in a story that makes sense of your story and your story, but a story that makes sense of all stories. And so that's what we're gonna unpack a little bit more together. So, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to our table, uh, tables for our first round of discussion. Uh, we're gonna do our memory verse uh, first. If somebody's new here tonight, please introduce yourselves. Uh, and then we'll have our first round of discussions and then we'll continue on together. So memory verse, discussions, and we'll continue on with our lecture. All right, we are going to continue on uh, together. So um, so just kind of a recap. So what we're looking at, that, that our Monday needs a better story. That's kind of our big idea. The first point we looked at is that everybody has a story, uh, that we all have some framework, worldview, set of lenses that we look through to make sense of reality. Uh, our second point is that this, uh, this, uh, we're going to look at the story that makes sense of all stories. So to use the Lord of the Rings language, one ring to rule them all, one story to make sense of all stories. And so uh, we're going to look at the Bible, the story of scripture. And again, when we think of the Bible, and this is sometimes for people who have grown up in the church, so if that's you, sometimes our association with the Bible is at best like god's word that is helpful for wisdom and life and godliness and which is good and true but sometimes at worst we just see it as a collection of like religious facts that seem kind of discombobulated how do we fit it all together like there's the old testament and it's like 90 percent of the bible and the new testament that focuses on jesus and it's like has this small amount like how do you make sense of this book it seems so random and convoluted how do you put it all together and that's what we're going to look at together Um, as we walk through the the, the narrative. And obviously we can't answer every question about the Bible uh, tonight. We'll do that next week. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, But but what I want us to see is that the way we understand the biblical narrative is that it is not just biblical uh, religious information, but it is the story that makes sense of our stories. And I I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, uh, and he's speaking broadly about the Christian faith, Uh, but it's one of my favorite quotes. uh, I believe it comes from, Mere Christianity, but I I, I could be mistaken. So, uh, but he says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that picture because it's not just a truth that we see and believe, but it is a truth that through which we are able to see and understand and make sense of all of reality. The Christian faith isn't just something we give intellectual assent to, like, yes, I agree with that, you know, it's that it has Reed's stamp of approval, but it is a truth that helps us make sense of everything. And so what I want to do, again, I, 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 sometimes it feels stuffy to kind of give definitions, but um, at the risk of being, um, you know, uh, overly simplistic, I'm going to offer a definition of the Bible. Are you ready? And here's my... I love that this thing spins, um, but here's my attempt at exp- uh, defining the Bible again. And this is, not, this is going to be so like disappointing for so many of you, uh, which if you've been around Christ community, you're used to us disappointing you. And so, but, uh, but the Bible is the way I would say it very broadly it is the true story of God creating heaven and earth and restoring them again through Jesus. Broadly, the story of the Bible, the, the, the definition of the Bible is the true story of God creating heaven and earth and restoring them again through Jesus. Now, again, there's a lot like, well, you don't mention sin or you don't mention the cross. Like there's a lot of things I didn't mention here, but the idea broadly speaking, and there's a reason why we're kind of giving this broad definition is because we tend to read the Bible in a very simplistic and truncated way, meaning that we tend to lop off the very sections of scripture that you were to read in our assignment for this week, particularly pages two, one and two of the Bible and the last two pages of the Bible, Genesis one and two, Revelation 21 and 22. And I think it's really important that we get those four chapters correct because they help us make sense of the whole narrative. So for your assignment this week, you were supposed to, I encourage you to read Genesis one and two and Revelation 21 and 22 in one sitting and to look for some comparisons. If you didn't do that, that's, that's fine, that's okay. Uh, there is still time to repent and to be forgiven. Uh, but, but truly what I, what I would say, th- this is an assignment I dr- genuinely want for you. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to find time in one sitting, read Genesis one and two, and then read Revelation 21 and 22. That, that's not like the, the, the way, like I read books in high school, that's how I did it. Like, okay, I'm gonna read the first chapter, and last chapter and try to give some book report. Uh, this isn't like a way of skimming the Bible. It's a way of helping us understand the bookends of the Bible and how it all fits together. And then hopefully you also saw the Bible project video on on heaven and earth that also frames some of these themes. And so what I'd like to do is to help us understand the Bible as story. The Bible as story. The Bible is a collection of stories. So when we Read the Bible. It is absolutely a collection of stories. You have the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis. You have the story of Israel being delivered out of slavery. You have the stories of the prophets calling Israel to repentance. The, the parables of Jesus. You have the, the, the journeys of the, uh, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles in Acts. Like There are definitely stories. But it is a collection of stories that comes together to tell one story. And that may may sound very overly simplistic, but it is so important for us to grasp that the Bible comes together to tell one story. And here's what I'd like to do. I, I wanna read, this is, if you don't have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, I highly recommend it. It's a great children's book but a great children's Bible, but it is a great just Bible Bible, you know? Nathan and I have referenced this before, how like when we're preaching in a text, we will routinely look at the Jesus Storybook Bible because it so beautifully tells the story of scripture through the lens of Jesus as the hero of that story. So I want to read this brief intro um, from Sally Lloyd-Jones. I always say her name incorrectly, but but she kind of talks about the Bible in this way. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have rules in it, and they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. And that, that's, that's good. That's really, really good. I do, so again, the idea is seeing the Bible as a cohesive story. Just as you wouldn't pick up Pride and Prejudice and turn to chapter 12 and start reading and like, who are these people wearing ascots and all these things? Like, you you would be confused, right? Like, you don't know what's going on if you jump into the middle of the story. Did I say ascot, right? Isn't that what they wear, ascots? Okay, I just want to make sure. I was like, did I just say a bad word on accident? Um, So the same thing is true with the Bible. If we're just jumping into the middle of a book or the middle of a book in the middle of a book and we're kind of confused or we're expecting it to do something for us and it doesn't, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised by that because we're jumping to the middle of a story that is telling something. And so we need to see it from beginning to end. And so, so how, does, how does the Bible begin? What are the opening words of Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And do you know what is said in the last chapter of the Bible? So, someone turn their turn their bibles to Revelation 22 verse 5. Would someone read Revelation 22 verse 5? Who's got it? Big big boy or big girl voice. I can do it. Let's hear it, Emily.
1: Night will be no more.
0: what kind of stories start out with in the beginning and end with forever and ever? They're they're, they're epic tales. Like there's something beautiful about the way in which the Bible opens and closes. This idea of in the beginning and then it ends with this idea of reigning forever and ever. That isn't by coincidence. It's telling a story, a grand story, an epic story. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament scriptures come together to tell a grand historical narrative about God creating heaven and earth and restoring them both again through Jesus. So how does the Bible open? God created the heavens and the earth. And how does the Bible end? God brings heaven and earth back together as one. And there's a lot in the middle, obviously, but that is the grand narrative and, and so what I want to do for, for our time now is I want to help us. So some of you are like, that's really cool and inspiring and beautiful. But how do we make sense of like like everything else in the middle? And so what I want to do is give us a bit of a framework in how to understand the broad narrative of Scripture. OK, but to do that, I, I have a little bit of an exercise for us. OK, so at your tables, bef- don't do it, Don't do it quite yet. There is a stack of papers under your table assignment letter. And what I want you to do, when I say go, uh, you can hand them out. So everybody keep them face down, but disperse them to everybody at your table. So everybody has one page, keep it face down. And when I say go, you're going to have one minute to find the number one, and then circle it. And then find the number two, and then circle it. And then the number three, and then circle it, in order, all the way until you get to the last number. And I don't remember what the last number is, Okay, You have one minute to do so. Don't flip it over until I say go. You have one minute and when you are done, put your pens down and raise your hand, okay? That's a power move that makes me feel like I am over you in authority, okay? So, okay, are you ready? Everybody ready? Does that make sense? So, find number one, circle if find number two. You have one minute on your mark, get set, go. You have 57 seconds. <laughs> I won't do that every three seconds. We got our first person done. First person done. We got our second person done. You have 15 seconds. If you don't complete it, you do have to go home. Five seconds. Four, three, two, one, stop. All right, raise your hand if you got it done. Raise your hand if you got it done. We got a handful of people. Oh, not as many people. Okay, so this this class is a little bit behind. Okay, it's all right, it's all right. So a few people got it. Okay, will you really quick um, lift your paper up in the air? Do you guys notice anything different? Do you notice anything different about the pages that are around you? Some of you got this page. Some of you got this page. What's different? The same exact numbers, the same layout. What's different? There's a grid. There's a hashtag. There's a tic-tac-toe symbol there. This grid. So what did you notice? For those that had the grid, what did you start to notice? Did you see a pattern emerging? If you look at it, you'll see that there's a one here, then a two here, then a three here, then a four here, then a five here, then a six here. Oh! This is my favorite part of Church for Monday because it makes me feel so powerful over you. It's really fun. So, So here's the thing, same set of numbers, right? You look at this and it looks like chaos. You can't, it doesn't look like data. It doesn't look like any kind of pattern whatsoever. And then what do you do? You, you, you smack a grid onto it. And all of a sudden, what do you start to see? Patterns emerge. And now what, uh, what was first just a jumbled mess of information is now something that you can kind of make sense of. Now, granted, only three of you still finished it in one minute. But we'll work on that in the weeks to come. But, but again, the idea, the simple change is that there was a grid that helped you make sense of the information. That is precisely what we want to do tonight in helping us understand what, when we come to the Bible, it appears as though it's just like random information. How do I make sense of this strange story of Abraham and Hagar? And, and, then, and then I jumped to the story of, of Paul speaking to uh, th- this King Agrippa and just like, and then, and then Jesus and his parents, like how do we make sense of all of it? And again, this isn't going to be the silver bullet that solves all of our questions about the Bible, but I do believe having this framework is helpful. And what I'm going to do, I'm gonna turn this around here. I'm gonna erase this, this definition. Hopefully you guys all got it. I want to introduce you to four words that have been, I mean, absolutely influential and, and very, very transformative in my understanding of scripture. And those words are, ought, is, can, and will. Ought, is, can, and will. Now, what, what these words represent so you're like, okay, th- these these are the most transformative words in your life. Like you got to get out more, read. These words, so if if you might be familiar with the more kind of religious words of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And if you're not familiar with those, that's okay. But, but these are four words that we've used to kind of summarize in a very simplistic sense the, the narrative and the structure of the biblical uh, storyline, that it tells the story of creation, the story of the fall, the story of redemption through Christ and the story of new creation where everything is headed. This is the broad Cliff's Notes version of the Bible. But what what I found to be helpful, what we as a church have found to be helpful is framing it actually with these more simplistic, uh, neutral terms. And and we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about uh, sharing the gospel uh, in in, uh, week seven, I believe. Um, But these words help us frame the story and also help us frame our Monday life through the story of scripture. And so when you engage in conversation with somebody about like, hey, do you believe that God created the world and, and, uh, and the universe in six days? Well, like that's, that's kind of like, man, that's a, that's, that's a hard conversation to engage in. But if I were to ask you, hey, do you believe the world is the way it ought to be? Well, that's a much more inviting conversation that, that can kind of lead into more conversations about faith and scriptures. And so these four words ought, is, can, will are a really beautiful way of summing up the storyline of scripture. And what I wanna do is very briefly kind of walk through these these chapters together. And and at Christ Community, we we refer to the biblical narrative as the four chapter story, the four chapter story. And so it's it's not about trying to make it simple, but again, it's giving a grid and a framework for how we bring the whole story together. And so in the story of Ot, the story of creation, I wanna briefly just mention a few things that are to highlight. There's a ton that we could highlight in Genesis one and two. And the more I read and study the Bible and teach it, the more I continue to come back to how vitally important Genesis one and two and and chapter three as well, but one and two are so pivotal in understanding the narrative of scripture and all of life. And so a few things I wanna point out in the Ot chapter is the first is this, is that we are created by God. We are created by God which is kind of an, an obvious statement. But the idea, the focus here is that God is the object of this story, that he is the creator, the maker, that, that nothing else exists prior to him. That There's a theological term that's referred to as aseity. God possesses aseity, which is this idea that there is nothing beyond God. The way I would summarize it, aseity describes that, this idea that there is nothing above God controlling him. There's nothing beside God advising him. There's nothing behind God pushing him, nothing in front of God pulling him, and nothing beneath God that is lifting him up. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. And this God has created us. The source source of our life comes from God. We are created by him. And so that's not just a question of origins, although that's an important question, but understanding that everything flows from God as creator, as the prime mover of all things. The second is this, is that we are, uh, that all things, including us as humans, we were created, uh, how do I say, created very good. If If you recall, if you were reading in Genesis 1 and 2, after the creation account, what does God say after every day of creation? It is good, it is good, it is good. And it is very good after everything is created. And so what this means, he's not just referring to the spiritual aspects of creation, He's not just looking at the the religious potential within creation, he's looking at everything. The physical, the material, the immaterial, everything he's created is good. And what that means is as we think about our Monday life that when we're engaged in very physical things that that should have some bearing on on how we see God's uh, approval and desire for us to be a part of, of this physical world. We tend to overemphasize the spiritual as Christians But what do we see in the very opening chapters of the Bible? That the physical world is very good. The third thing we see is that we are created uh, in his image. And we could spend a ton of time created in his image. And and there's so much about the the doctrine of the image of God in all people. And and this comes from Genesis 1, 26 27. But the idea here is that we possess inherent worth and dignity and value. Every human being possesses inherent uh, worth, dignity, and value. And so the, the, the belief of the image of God is what really is the foundation of every Christian ethic. I mean, it's the reason why, we, like, we, like Christians who are committed to uh, defending the rights of the unborn, to caring for those who are stuck in abject poverty. Uh, the reason why we should be interested in caring for matters of, of mass incarceration and caring for immigrants among us. Like all of that is rooted in the fact that people are made in the image of God. And what's so interesting is there's so many people in our world and culture who, who believe in matters of, of care and justice for people who don't believe in the image of God. They're stowaways. They're, they're stealing kind of this foundation of why we should be engaged in these matters and this work. And when we believe this, it has an absolute influence on how we live our lives. And again, there, there's so much we, we could say, but, but what we see in the Im- Im- image of God is that we are like God in one sense, and we are also created for God. The fourth thing to point out here is that we are created for relationship, created for relationship. And we see this, the the one thing that God said was not good in creation, it was not good that man should be alone. And it's not just because men do stupid things when women aren't around, that's true. But, but the idea is that we are created for relationship. God has created us with a longing and a desire for companionship, not simply marriage. I think that's something that, that, that Christians have tended to abuse or uh, distort is that what, what is being established and created is that God has made us for marriage. And that's true, but he has fundamentally created us for relationship, for companionship, for friendship. And we've been created to have meaningful relationships with with God, first and foremost, with others, with ourselves, and also with creation. And we see these relationships in, in the created order, that God has created us for relationships with himself, with others, with ourselves, and with creation. And each of these, which we'll see, are disintegrated as a result of the fall. We are created for relationships. And then lastly, in this chapter, we see that we are created for work. And and we'll have have a whole lecture kind of around this, so I won't unpack it a ton. But in Genesis two, would someone turn to Genesis two, verse 15, Judy, do you have, it looks like you have maybe it open to Genesis. Would you read verse 15 for us, please? And so here we see Adam's job description. Before sin enters the world, Adam is called to work the garden and to keep the garden. And, and those are very basic you know, words in terms we hear that, like, yeah, he's just a gardener. Like, like God has hired him to kind of make sure everything looks nice and pretty. But those words, again, this is where Genesis 1 and 2 is so pivotal to understand. Those words work and keep are the Hebrew words, avodah and shamarah, which are just fun to say. Say that with avodah, Avodah and Shamarah, Shamarah. Isn't that fun? It's just so fun. And so Avodah is this word that communicates, it's actually the same word used to describe the work of the Levitical priests in what they did in the temple in conducting worship services and sacrifices for the people of Israel. And that's not a coincidence. Adam, in his very basic job of t- uh, caring in the garden, he's described with very priestly words in his work of tending the first temple, which is creation. And shamarah is another word, it's another similar word like avodah used to refer to religious activity of, of guarding and preserving, maintaining holiness. Again, another term used to describe the work of the priests, it is being used to describe Adam. The point here in this text is that work is to be seen not only as a part of the human experience, but also as a means of worship to the glory of God. And this is what we have fundamentally missed in a great deal as we think about work and vocation, whether paid or unpaid, in the home, outside the home, that work is to be seen as, a, as an act of worship unto the Lord for His glory and for the good of creation. We see that fundamentally and very clearly in Genesis 1 and 2. And so that is the the chapter of ought, of creation. Again, so much more we're going to unpack, but this gives a beginning framework of how the world was meant to be. So now let me me pause there. Any questions, comments, points of clarification I can make? Okay. So now we're going to move uh, to the second chapter of is. And so this is where everything falls apart. And so this is the chapter of the fall. So we have is, which is the story of the fall. And, and really what happens here, and this is, again, we have sometimes a very religious understanding of, of, the, of sin and it's, that we tend to see it purely as just like immoral behavior. It's no less than that. But what sin fundamentally is, it is the disintegration of all the good things that were established in that first chapter. It is the disintegrate. When you think of disintegration, you think of like annihilated, right? But it disintegrated. Remember, we talked about this. It's the opposite of being integrated. Things have been pulled apart. They are no longer whole. They have been fractured. They have been ripped apart. There are divisions. And so what we see is that all those good relationships between uh, us and God, us and others, us and ourselves and creation, all of those relationships have now been disintegrated there is now what is referred to as the vandalism of peace. That that's really what sin is. It is the vandalism of peace. And, and one of my favorite, uh, St. Augustine, uh, the, the early church father, he describes sin in this way. I think this is really helpful. He says that our core problem is that the human heart, ignoring God, turns in on itself, tries to lift itself, wants to please itself, and ends up debasing itself. That, that, that's really what the, hu- what the human condition of brokenness and sin does. That our core problem is that the human heart in ignoring God, we turn in, it turns in on itself, tries to lift itself, wants to please itself and ends up debasing itself. Sin is the act of separating what God has brought together and bringing together things that God meant to be separated. That, that, that's really what the work of sin is. And so again, sin is not just doing bad things and refusing to do good things. That's true, That's that's a basic understanding. But sin is really more about the disintegration of the whole life that all of us long to live. And that's because sin is a refusal to take our rightful place as creatures in God's created world. This is why sin is more about a matter of being than it is about doing. There there is such a vital importance of what it means to have our being precede our doing when it comes to being followers of Jesus. The same thing is true of sin. Sin is first and foremost about our being before it is about our doing. And so the chapter of is really, and we see it most notably, it begins in Genesis 3, the severing of all those relationships. But it's it's played out throughout the rest of scripture and in our lives. And really the main, the, the, the key word is dis- Integration. I, I don't know if I can spell that right, but disintegration is the key word here to grasp. Okay, so questions about, questions about sin. <laughs> Not like how to or a tutorial, but like questions about the, the chapter of is, of brokenness. And again, we're, we're, we're kind of flying over it. The idea is just to kind of give us a framework of this story. Yes, Logan. What's that? Oh, thank, thank you. Great question. So, so, so ought is kind of the real, the idea of like, this is how life ought to be. God created it. This is how it's designed. And this is just how it now is. We, we now live in this kind of liminal space between ought and will. And we all feel and experience that the world is the way. Thank you for bringing that up. I totally is like, yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory, two letters. Um, but the idea is that this is the world we now live in. This is how things are, but it's not the way they ought to be. And and it doesn't mean that's the only way things will be. And and that's kind of what we turn to next. And so, and again, we'll we'll talk about how these words are really operative and engaging in um, evangelistic conversations in a few weeks. But now we turn to the chapter of Can. And this is really the the, the chapter of redemption. And, And in many ways, this is kind of what we talked about in great detail on week two on taking up our cross, the central message of the gospel that the idea is that the whole storyline is building towards Jesus. That even in Genesis 3, when when the the curses are being dished out upon humanity, upon the earth itself, we read these beautiful promising words. It's it's referred to in Genesis 3.15, we read these words that are referred to as the proto-euangelion, which again, is just a fun word to say to your friends, you know, impress them at brunch. Um, But proto, meaning first, Evangelion. we learn that term in our, in our uh, gospel class. It's, it's the word gospel, it's the word good news. And so people, theologians refer referred to Genesis 3.15 as the first gospel. Hear these words, God declared, as, he's dishing, as, as sin has ravaged the world, disintegrated these good relationships, God does not, uh, does not pause until he gives the hope of promise. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, referring to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is this promise of foreshadowing, a a taste, a preview of what is to come in Christ's decisive victory over sin and death in his life, death and resurrection. And what begins in Genesis 3.15, really what begins in Genesis, is this preview and preparation of Jesus being the fulfillment of what the story is about. And so the story of Can is, yes, while we know what ought to be, we now live in the world that is, but we can find change and redemption and transformation through Christ and that the whole story of the Bible is building up towards that. And and I have this great little video. This is something that Tim Keller put together that beautifully captures how the whole storyline of Scripture is building up and pointing to, previewing, preparing for Jesus. Ben, would you play that for us?
1: Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better abbot though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our food. Jesus I'm to skip the second Abraham video. I'm, the call of God. I'm not going to play so that, that one, so just, just this going one. Going into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and bitter Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, who was truly sacrificed for us all. What God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not behold your son your only son whom you love for me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the moment of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king, and forgives those who betrayed and sold him, and uses his power to save us. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology, it's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, Says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out of the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's. He's the
0: true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true life, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Isn't that good? Oh, that's just, that's so good. It's just, I mean, that, that is in, in a minute and a half, you see this flyover of, it, it just changes the way we read these stories. Again, there's nothing wrong with reading the biblical narrative and, and, and finding moral lessons that come from it. But when we miss the primary objective that all of these stories come together to tell one grand story about Jesus, who is the one through whom God is working to restore heaven and earth once again. It changes the way we read the Bible. It changes the way we engage and approach our Monday life. This is the story that we build our lives upon. So now we turn to the last chapter of will. Ought is, can, will. And so we know how things ought to be. We have, a, we have a taste of that. We have a sense of that. We are, we are as, as C.S. Lewis referred to, we are haunted by a sense of oughtness in our world. We know that we aren't who we ought to be. We live in the world of is, how things are broken. We can find redemption through Christ. And what the hope of the Christian narrative that makes sense of all narratives is, is that one day we will see all things renewed. And, and, and revelation, 20, uh, revelation in particular, but revelation or revelation in general, but revelation 21 in particular gives us a beautiful picture of this. And so again, if you read Genesis one and two and revelation 21 and 22, you saw some of this. So revelation 21, this is what we see. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem and I saw disembodied souls leaving their bodies and going up to heaven to reside with God forever, floating on clouds. If you have your Bibles open, you know that is not what Revelation 21 says. What do we see? We don't see at the end of the book, we don't see disembodied souls leaving earth and floating to the sky to exist in this ethereal realm. We see heaven coming down to earth as a city adorned like a bride, let me me just read Holy Scripture. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with humanity. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I mean, there is there is very few words that have been written by human hands that are more beautiful than that. What we see again is the picture is not disembodied souls going up to heaven. We see heaven coming down to this earth, restoring this physical earth. And, and, and what do we see? We, we see that the, the promise is that God is not going to make all new things. He's making all things new. He's not like, you know, that, you know the whole created order and, and, and the, the physical realm that I created, let's scrap that and start something over totally new and different. No, the idea, the goal of all of creation, the story of the Bible, what is it? It's the true story of God creating heaven and earth and restoring them again through Jesus. That's where everything is moving towards. And, and when, you, when you understand, again, this nerve, you see why it's so important to know Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, how they fit together, how they come together to make sense of this whole story. And so often we settle, we settle for a very truncated gospel story, like I mentioned, that's only chapters 2 and chapters 3. The chapter of is and the chapter of can, the chapter of sin and the chapter of redemption. And those are great chapters, y'all. They're, they're, well, I mean, yeah, this is not a great chapter, but, like, but you know what I'm saying? Like, We tend to settle for, hey, what is the gospel narrative? What is the Christian story? It's that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Is that true? Absolutely. Is it the whole truth? No. And so when we settle for a very simple story of you're a sinner and you need Jesus, it's like, yes, that's true, but you're, man, you're missing out on a whole lot of good stuff because that doesn't make sense to people. If you don't give the full narrative of what began in the beginning and where everything is headed, you just tell people you're a sinner and you need Jesus, and they don't understand how we've been designed and created, and the longings that you feel, and the existential crisis you're going through in sensing that your life doesn't matter, that's coming from the fact that you have been disconnected and disintegrated from the creator of your entire existence, and that you're not living in accordance with the design of the maker of all things. But when you just start with you're a sinner and you need Jesus, You're not going to get very far. I'm not saying we never, hear me. We are sinners and we need Jesus, right? Amen? Like, that's true. But we have to see this fuller story. And we see hints of it. It's not just in Revelation. One, One of my favorite passages of Scripture, there's a lot of favorites. You know, pastors have a lot of favorites in Scripture. But Isaiah 65 is one of my, perhaps one of my favorite passages because it gives a very similar picture of what we just saw in Revelation 21. It's a picture and a promise of this new heavens and new earth. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And so you see that similar language that it's, that's fulfilled, that will be fulfilled, that's as good as promise in Revelation 21. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, not just heavens. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. For in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and, he, and be glad in my people. You see this relational language of God, that he's not just, I'm, I'm forgiving you, I'm gonna take you to heaven so you can live there forever. There's this sense of delight in God in bringing all things back to himself. And no more, oh man, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And then you've probably heard us sing this song on Sundays. Your labor is not in vain. It comes right from this passage. And they shall build houses. So what's the picture of the new heavens and new earth? It's not us playing on harps on clouds and doing all the things we've ever wanted to do. We see a life that looks a lot like this life, but refined without dross, without, without uh, imperfection. What will the new heavens and new earth look like? They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. When that's our story, when that's the picture I mean doesn't doesn't that bring a greater sense of meaning to what we do on Monday Doesn't that doesn't that connect the dots for someone who is trying to understand and make sense of what purpose and significance identity and joy means in a life that where they buy into a narrative of make all you can can all you make and then sit on your can Like when when that's the narrative we buy into and we feel this kind of sense of di- uh, dissatisfaction in it when we can tell a fuller story of what scripture is we have something greater to offer. So don't settle for just a two-chapter 2, two chapter story. Settle for, don't settle, but, but but be committed to the fullness of the story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, ought is, can, will. Okay, let me pause there. I know, I know we've been chatting for a long time here. Let me, let me pause. Questions, comments, is there anything I can clarify? We've covered the whole Bible in like 45 minutes. And so uh, you're masters of it. You've quizzed out. Uh, no, just kidding. But, but yeah, questions, anything I can clarify in this framework of seeing how the story of the Bible comes together? Yeah, many. That was Isaiah 65, verse 17 through a, a number larger than 17. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but yeah, Isaiah 65, you should probably be able to find it from there. Yeah, uh, starting in verse 17, yeah. Other questions, comments? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, what I want to do, we're, gonna have a little bit, we're a little bit behind schedule, but that's okay, because um, I, I allotted for that some, some extra time. What I want to do is kind of have some conversation around the exercise. If you weren't able to read Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, that's okay. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm hoping some of us were. And what I'd love to do is just spend some time Uh, just sharing together um, um, at your table. So, so this is a bonus table discussion. Okay. So I want to give you just five minutes at your table. uh, And if you were able to read through those chapters, I'd love you to share like, what was, what was your experience of reading those chapters? What were connections you made between the two sections? Um, and then what was, was there anything that helped bring the story together for you? So just general observations you made, connections or comparisons, or even questions that came about. So take, let's take five minutes together, and then we'll come back together for a large group discussion. All right, go and take about 30 seconds and wrap up, and then we'll try to do some group discussion here. so here here's what we're going to do so um uh, for the sake of time because i want to give us some time for our last round of discussion questions and then our assignment for this week but uh, what again what i want to do if you if you have not done the assignment again there's no shame in that but truly I, i would love for you to have the opportunity and the time sometime this week to have that time of in one sitting read genesis 1 and 2 revelation 21 and 22 and, and what you'll see, again, that you'll see similarities and comparisons. Uh, and, and the idea of that is to bring together the connection of what God did in creation and what he's doing in new creation. And it's a way for us to bring the whole story together. Uh, so what I wrote down here, th- these are just some, some teasers for you. So like if you're someone who kind of needs a little bit of a, a guide or priming of the pump, I mean, so obviously some of the comparisons we saw, well, before I maybe go through these, what, what were some comparisons for those who read uh, the, the four chapters together? What were some of the comparisons you noticed between the two? What, what jumped out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lindsay, that's good. That's good. So, so there's, so you see day and night being created. And, and so what one observation is really interesting. When you look at the seventh day of creation or it's the day that God rested. It's the only day that doesn't end with, and there was no, there was day and there was night. Every, every day of creation is there was day and there was night. The third day, the day and night, fourth day, the seventh day of rest, you don't see an end. And there's a lot there's a, I mean, there's a lot of fun and dorky uh, debate around why that is, but it's something, I, I believe it's alluding to the picture of what we are longing for in new creation, which is a, a day without end where there is perfect Sabbath rest. What we are longing for, what Nathan talked about last week, is a time where we'll find rest, not just ease from work, but true rest in God. And so I think there's something that is being foreshadowed in Genesis 2 about how this day of rest that God created is preparing and pointing to a day without end that we see in Revelation 22. So, so Lindsay, you're, you're spot on, but there's just something about the, the seventh day of rest. Again, there's a lot of kind of interesting debate around the seventh day, but that, that's something to kind of be looking for. Okay. What, what's another connection or comparison that you found between the four chapters? God dwelling directly with people? Yes. It's, you, you don't see. I mean, you definitely see a transcendent God, but you see a God who is who is near. That's beautiful, Trey. You, you you have this idea. So in creation, you see God is walking with Adam, and He is communicating with them. He is near to them. And then what we see in, in Revelation is that I will dwell with my people. They will be my people. The dwelling place of God is within humanity now and forever. That there's a nearness to God. I don't think I, that, that didn't even make my list. That was lovely, Trey. I love that. But truly, the nearness of God's presence. What else, maybe one or two more. Any any other comparisons you noticed? Genesis 1 is light before the sun
1: and the moon are created. In Revelation, God himself
0: is the light. That's, yeah, absolutely. And and, and so there's a connection. You see this idea of, essentially, God is the source of of everything. You see that in Genesis, and then that's fulfilled later in Revelation. And and tell me, you're you're a guest. I'm sorry, what's your name? Gordon. Nice to have you with us, Gordon. Nice to have you. Um, Okay. So, so here are just a few others. I mean, you can add these to your list kind of as teasers, but obviously you see the connection of heaven and earth uh, in Genesis one and two, Revelation 21 and 22. You also see this theme of dominion, that part of what it means to be humans is to have an authority and a reign and a rule, not, not of, not of one of where we are in power over creation, but that we are stewards of it. And you see this kind of dominion language come up in in how uh, humans are created and also what that will look like in the new heavens and new earth. There's some aspect of us continuing to reign and rule, keep and cultivate um, as we were created. You also see the the, the imagery of a bride. What, What is the new Jerusalem? Being presented like a bride adorned for a husband. And you see, even though the word bride is not, you don't show up in, you don't see it show up in Genesis, but you see the first bride presented to Adam. You see Eve presented to Adam, the first marriage. The Bible opens with the marriage and it ends with the marriage. That's kind of the picture that we see in other bookends. You see, this isn't recreation, it's recreation. I should have put a hyphen there. So it's like, oh, there's ping pong and stuff. But the idea is, is recreation. And so God is created, but what does he ask Adam to do? He puts him to work to create with what he has created already. He, he asked them to cultivate. I mean, there's, this, there's a reason why it says before there was a bush in the garden, God created Adam, breathed life into him. And that was intentional was to say, hey, I'm creating you to create with what I've created. And you see the same idea. God is making all things new. And we see the same thing. We see recreation in the garden. We see recreation in the new heavens and new earth. You see both in Genesis and Revelation, God inviting the works of his people and bringing them in into his temple, into where he dwells. You see the reference of beauty and jewels, which is something to be said about about that God has not just created a utilitarian world for us to inhabit and benefit from, but that he has made things with beauty. He has made food to taste good. And so there's something beautiful about knowing that what the new creation will be is that there's a sense of enjoying all that is beautiful that God has created. And then the no end of days, which Lindsay kind of mentioned already. So again, these are just some teasers to think about as you uh, do this assignment. If you weren't able to, again, no shame in that. I'm not trying to, to make you guys feel bad about that, but as a way to prime the pump for that reading at some point, okay? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I I want us to have some time for our last round of table discussions. And so let's take about 10 minutes or so for the the last round of table discussions. Uh, And then we will do some wrap up and preparation for next week. So last round of table discussions. All right, two minute warning, two minute warning. Oh, All right, take, take about 10 seconds to wrap up your last conversation. Then we're going to do some final closing remarks here. Okay, so yeah, so tonight our big idea is that um, that your Monday, all of our Mondays need a better story. And, and again, the, the idea that a disciple who's ready for Monday doesn't just simply read the Bible, doesn't just simply believe the Bible, but sees this story as the story that makes sense of all our stories. It's the, it's the lens, the framework, the grid through which we understand everything. And so, so one thing we're going to talk about, uh, our, our capstone project here in a second. But one thing I would just encourage you to do, and this is just, this is maybe a helpful exercise for us as we think about what it means to believe this truth for all of life. Uh, that, that as we think of this framework of odd is can will take some time as you think I mean this, this is just a, a list of, of so these, these are my hobbies no just kidding uh, the, the list of sorry that was um, it's a long it's been a long day um, these oh man I forgot I wrote sex on there okay so <laughs> <laughs> okay so um, what I would suggest what I encourage is is take a subject whether on this list or a subject that you are interested in concerned about that uniquely brings a sense of, of burden or passion in, in you and and run it through this story run it through this framework and and ask the question of, as we think about our work and we're going to be doing this through the capstone project which i'll explain in a second but take something like race and ask the question like what what ought to be What was God's intentional and created design for how humanity should function across cultural and ethnic dividing lines? What now is the reality? What can be through the power of Christ who brings redemption and reconciliation and what one day will be? And so again, you, you can do this with, with any of these realities of work, of family, money, race, power, relationships, mental health, et cetera. Like, like, again, th- this, it may be a hard conversation uh, to have, but I think this is a way for us, as we think about viewing all of life through the story that makes sense of all of life, this is a great practice and exercise. And so again, it may be something on this subject, but I would encourage you to have conversations with, with friends, with roommates, with, with family members, with coworkers of how do we think about these major subjects of life and how are, how do they make sense through this framework? And, and what's really interesting, and again, we'll talk about this when we talk about sharing the gospel, but this is such a more inviting and conducive way to talk about very challenging subjects that doesn't feel very religious-y like, or like... Um, spiritual. Like you, we can talk about money and race from, instead of just talking about, well, what do you think God's original design was? Well, maybe just ask the question, like, what, what do you think ought to be? Like how, sh- how ought we to conduct ourselves when it comes to race relations in our culture? What is the problem? What, what do you think? Like, I mean, that, that, that again, can lead to very interesting conversations. What do you think can be done about it? And what do you think will be the result of racial divide and injustice in our culture? But again, do this with any of these subjects. But what, I, what we do wanna encourage you to do in Church for Monday is something that we're calling the Capstone Project. And so it, there, there's a prompt on page 44, uh, if you'll turn there, you'll see the first prompt for the Capstone Project that you will be experiencing this week. Uh, if you did not get a bookmark, there's a bookmark that has uh, the, the prompts for that. So if you didn't go, get one, if you wanna hold on to this, we have extra ones, just as a way if you wanna keep it in your Bible instead of in your booklet or something like that. But the idea of the Capstone Project is that throughout the remainder of our time in Church for Monday, each week, you will have a prompt um, around the same uh, day of the in your weekly schedule, giving you some guidance and suggestions and practices for how to connect your Sunday faith with your Monday life. And that, and that may be where you spend the majority of your time in your vocation, whether that's paid or unpaid, whether it's, maybe it's in the way in which you serve and volunteer. It may be how you parent or grandparent, but think about your Monday life and your first capstone prompt, as you'll see, is assess your Monday through the four chapter story. Ask yourself these questions, like what ought to be, what is God's original intended design for this aspect and part of my life? What now is broken? As you look out, uh, so what ought your work to, what ought your work be like? That's kind of a hard sentence to say. Where do you experience brokenness in your work? Where is your work redeeming? And again, that word work, I hopefully understand that that's a broad term really to describe where you spend the majority of your time, where you have the greatest amount of influence. And so it may be an office, it may be a project, it may be a person that God has placed in your life to invest in. Where is your work redeeming? And then engage your imagination and think through what your work will look like when Christ returns. And, and hopefully this is a way for us to build our lives upon the Bible. And so what you'll see is that there will be a different prompt each week, kind of giving you some greater guidance and clarity and direction on how to think uh, about our Monday life through the lens and the story of scripture. And then again, for extra bonus credits, uh, you can do that through all these other categories as well, uh, if you're interested. But, but it, and, and this may prompt some questions or thoughts, like, man, I've never thought about how do we understand something like economics? through this four-chapter story. That that is, I've only thought of economics in purely utilitarian terms of of exchange and trade. And so how do we think about it from a biblical perspective? Um, So hopefully the the capstone prompt and project will be uh, a way for us to connect these dots uh, for uh, what we believe on Sunday and how we live out On Monday. So so let let me pause really quick. Any questions, comments, any last minute things that I can clarify for you uh before we head out and before I give us our our last assignment for this upcoming week? Any other questions, comments, things I can clarify? Okay. I have a really random, probably silly question. When we go through it was like okay yes i myself. so okay so okay so um for this upcoming week yes. you we are your assignment is to read hold on i'm on the wrong page uh, on page 35 so uh your assignment is to read uh, a place where we belong chapter three from ecclesia so th- this word's a little confusing so week four is what we are discussing obviously today the big assignment is for week five for what's next. So, and, be, okay, hold on.
1: What pages? It's late, it's going to be tired. What pages we be
0: doing? I should have created a graph. That's what I should have done. I really should have. So, page 35, so page 35, day one is Wednesday tomorrow. So church for Monday that starts on Tuesday actually begins on Wednesday. <laughs> 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 Does that make, okay, so (laughs) I just, for the sake of confusing, I, I said a stupid joke for the sake of confusing you guys. So, week four, week four begins on day one on page 35.
1: And do I start that tomorrow?
0: Yes, yes. And you'll have to pull the weekend in the middle. You'll do one, two, three, and then
1: you'll have to jump to the end of the weekend. And then you'll come back
0: on Monday and do day four and on Tuesday do day five. Does that make sense? So, so if you're on page 35, really, so if you're on page 35, which is day one, this is super, this is super, it is. It, Lindsay, do not feel, I, l- let us applaud Lindsay for her courage in asking that question. No, seriously, seriously. I like, I, there's so many times I never asked these questions. So day one on page 35 is Wednesday. Day two is Thursday. Day three, Friday. Friday. And then you will have to skip day four. So days four and five are Monday and Tuesday because you go to the, yeah. So it's a Quentin Tarantino film. It's all out of order. This is how the world is not on today. Yes. <laughs> so so your first assignment is to run this workbook through this grid. It is not how it on today. So it, part of the challenge is uh, we're doing this class over five campuses, and they do it at different nights of the week. And so to create the same booklet, if we put days on it, it would have been very confusing and different. So does that kind of make sense? Okay, okay. We, we tried. Uh, Lindsay, again, seriously, thank you for asking that. And Claire, everybody was wondering it, and you had the courage to ask it. Okay, so our assignment for next week is to read uh, the, the chapter that will be emailed to you um, uh, that I just, I just had it. Uh, the place where we belong. Uh, our scripture memory verse will be 1 Peter 2 verses 9 through 10 for next week. And so that is our assignment for this upcoming week. Cool? We're all on the same page. <laughs> the ironic thing is that on a lecture about a story that makes sense of all of our stories, we end with great confusion. So uh, let, me, let me close with a benediction. Uh, let me, let me read this over us and bless us as we, as we depart from our time. Again, guys, thank you. This is, I love this. I think we say it every week, but it is a joy to be with you. It is a joy to unpack these truths that aren't not just interesting and insightful, but truly do bring new life to us and hopefully to those that God has blessed us to have influence over. So, so here are these words from the apostle Paul, second Corinthians chapter five. These are true of those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. May it be true of us as we go from this place. Amen. Go in peace. Love y'all.